the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Plutka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast. <laughs> I can't believe it. I can just say this, and it's even more apt this week. What the hell is going on? If there was ever the name for a podcast in 2020, that was it. You're not kidding. <laughs> it was a brilliant inspiration. It's like we saw it coming. <laughs> we saw it coming. 2020, we got the perfect name for a podcast. All that's missing is a meteorite. So what are we talking about today? Well, we're talking about whether the guy who introduces our podcast is going to have a job. <laughs> And that's a good question. Certainly a pretty great night for a lot of Republicans, but a still an ambiguous night for Donald J. Trump. Yep. As we record this, it is uh, Thursday afternoon and we still don't have a president. Um, I'll tell you what we do know, though. The polling industry is in a world of hurt. The polls got it so wrong. You know, we kept hearing, oh, yeah, they've adjusted for uh, all the mistakes they made in 2016. It was worse than 2016. I mean, my, my newspaper, The Washington Post had Biden winning Wisconsin by 17 points, 17 that, that points, po- that and it's 21,000 votes yeah. that separated them. So the polling industry got it wrong. And I will tell you, if you're a conservative, you're looking at that and you see, you know, there was all the polls saying that Donald Trump was not going to win, that there was a blue wave coming, that the popular vote was going to be, you know, through the roof. And by the way, you know, everyone talks about the RCP averages, like, well, you know, the RCP averages were closer. That's because of Trafalgar. <laughs> That's yeah. because a few Trumpy polls that got it right were pulling up the averages. If you take out Trafalgar from the RCP averages, it's all wrong. They just got it completely wrong. Right. And the reality is that this country, a lot of people supported Donald Trump, despite four years of calling him a racist and a bigot and, and a Russian and stooge. A Russian stooge and trying to impeach him and all the rest of it. He's still hanging in there and it, it's darn close. It is darn close. I think, you know, I can't stand all of these crazy town conspiracy theories that are furthered by social media. But I think it's not a conspiracy theory to suggest that the media and the establishment elite, establishment political elite that is engaged in polling and in political commentary and in newspaper, you know, the editorial pages of newspapers actually deliberately got it wrong. They have nothing but contempt for conservatives. Not just for Trump. No, not just for Trump. Not just for Trump. How many times have you heard this in the last four years? If you're a Republican, you're a racist. Someone said that to me when we were off camera when I was on TV. On your panel? Yeah. Someone said that to me. And I won't say who because... Knowing you're a Republican, they basically called you a racist to your face. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Unbelievable. And, you know... What is remarkable is notwithstanding this coalition of contemptuous editorial page editors and pollsters and commentators and and, and never Trumpers, people still voted for the man. Yep. I mean, how out of touch are these people? Well, a couple things to think about. One, I, I wrote a column last week before the election on, you know, a thought experiment on what, what the Trump presidency looked like with the mute button on. Yeah. And just all the things that he's done. 
And, you know, I concluded by saying, of course, you can't put the mute button on the presidency. I'm a former speechwriter, a presidential speechwriter. I know the president's words matter. But you know what? A lot of the country does follow the Trump presidency with a mute button on. They're not taking, you know, Donald Trump says something crosswise to a reporter in the press briefing room and and official Washington sets its hair on fire outside the beltway. And then, you know, as what Scott Walker calls the 46 square miles surrounded by reality, uh, (laughs) out in reality, they're not setting their hair on fire all the time over every dumb thing he says. They're looking at what he does. And a lot of people liked what he did. I mean, the poll that, that struck me the most going into this election is that 56% of Americans, Gallup poll, said they're better off now than they were four years ago. That is in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of the worst recession since the Great Depression, in the middle of racial unrest. They still said they were better off. So it shouldn't have come to a surprise to everybody in Washington that he did as well as he did. Right. And he did as well as he did despite desperately trying to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. (laughs) So if Donald Trump doesn't make it, and let's just say, if he does make it, it'll be a total squeaker. But if he doesn't make it, I think you can, yes, of course, all of these things that we've talked about endlessly on these podcasts, his bad judgment, his affinity for strongmen leaders, notwithstanding the policies of his administration, his ambiguity and inability to denounce people who like him no matter how loathsome they may be, you know, all of those things, I think, didn't kill him as much as that first debate. Absolutely. So... I've had a theory, you know, we, we kept hearing, I've, I've talked about this a lot if you, if you watch Fox News and you see me on the air, but we heard a lot during this election about the shy Trump voter, which is shy Trump voter is defined as the guy who wears a MAGA hat in the house but takes it off before he goes out, right? <laughs> um, you know, a guy who won't put the Trump sign on his uh, lawn. As ever. an etiquette specialist, yeah. let me just say that anybody who wears a hat in their house is not allowed. <laughs> and the coastal elites have spoken. Um, but uh, that's, I guess it's the Australian coast. Uh, but, uh, but Very different. But I've been talking about the reluctant Trump voter, which is a different animal. The reluctant Trump voter is one of those 20 percent of people in 2016 who said, I voted for him, but I don't like him. The reluctant Trump voter are these people who say, yeah, he's better on the economy. I trust him more. I prefer his policies to the policies of Joe Biden. Gallup poll, 49 percent plurality prefer Trump's policies to Biden's policies. But I just can't take the chaos. I just can't take the The exhaustion. There was a level of Trump exhaustion in the country. Because, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, fighting with reporters about fake news and so that when people want they just want information. Right. But also and and also the constant character assassination. I mean, again, I think you've detailed very nicely how Dr. Fauci has, you know, actually given misleading information to the country. You had a good piece on that in, in the post. He's not the saint that people say. But on the other hand, Donald Trump, freaking control yourself, you know. And so he realized that he was screwing up with this in the pandemic. And so all of a sudden, for like a few months before the election kicked in, he was having these briefings where he was just laying out facts, not getting into fights, trying to be normal, be presidential and all the rest of it. He had a normal convention. He did all this. And then we get to the first presidential debate. And, you know, something like 73 million Americans tuned in to watch that. Right. And this is, you know, you don't get that kind of attention. Even State of the Union address only has like 40 or 50 million people. And he comes across as a... Son of a bitch. Yeah. And so he that's the and nice I think word. a lot of people watched that debate and said, I'm done. Yep. Don't need to tune and in anymore. Don't need to tune I'll in anymore. I'm done. If he had done the second debate twice, 
I think he would have won. If you think this is about, you know, 100,000 votes around the country, potentially, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Now, let's just quickly talk about Joe Biden, because, you know, the way that Joe Biden designed his campaign, and you and I both said, you know, we'll either call it brilliant or we'll call it the stupidest thing anyone ever did. Well, it's edging towards brilliant, is that he had and made this a referendum on Donald Trump, camera hog, right? So now the question is, if Joe Biden ends up, you know, winning this race, ends up being crowned president, I realize that's not the right term, but it seems okay. If he ends, what kind of a president is he going to be? Is he going to be someone who is actually what you have said and what I have said, uh, a Trojan horse for the far left? Or is he going to actually govern as Joe Biden 1995, as I like to call him, moderate Democrat representing a party that isn't full of crazy lefty socialist nostalgics? Well, we're going to get talk to a Democrat uh, who's going to tell us a little bit about that in a minute, but uh, I'll give you my, my two cents on it, which is the best thing that has happened to a potential Biden presidency, and I'm not conceding that there will be one, but if there is one, is the fact that the, the Democrats look like they have failed to take back the Senate. Because if they took back the Senate, even by a one-vote majority, the pressure to, to get rid of the filibuster would be huge. And we've talked about this on the air and about what the consequences of that would be from court packing to Senate packing to the Green New Deal to Medicare for all and all the rest of it. Joe Biden would not be able to withstand. First of all, it wouldn't be his choice. It's Chuck Schumer's choice. And two, he wouldn't be able to withstand the pressure to cave into his party's left. If he has to deal with Mitch McConnell, it absolves, it lifts all the pressure on him. Yep. It absolves him. He can say to Ocasio-Cortez and Pelosi and, and the squad and Don't and come Sanders, to me. Don't go to talk me, to talk Mitch. To, don't, don't come to me. Talk to Mitch. We got to get something that can pass. And I know how to pass stuff, but we're going to have to compromise. And so, you know, Joe Biden promised, he campaigned, and this is, by the way, also, there is no mandate for socialism from this election. One, this was a referendum on Trump. Both Republicans and Democrats said they were voting on Trump. And two, to the extent that there's any mandate, it's a mandate for moderation. It's a mandate for a unifier, right, if Joe Biden gets the, the election. So he has no mandate for the Green New Deal and for Medicare for all and for all this so- socialist spending. He's going to have to compromise. And it's not going to be compromising with Bernie Sanders. It's going to be compromising with Mitch McConnell. And that's a whole different animal. I bet in his heart of hearts, Joe Biden's pretty happy about that. We didn't talk about this, including with our guest, but I want to one word on this with you. Not one word. That's a lie, obviously. (laughs) The House of Representatives. When have I ever given you one word? (laughs) Never. (laughs) In one word, never. House of Representatives. Yeah. We're looking at probably a net pickup for the Republicans of 10. Charlie Cook and the very respected Cook political report the day before the election said we're looking at a net pickup 10 to 15 for the House for the Dems. Yep. That didn't happen. Is Nancy Pelosi going to survive this? It's a really interesting question. I don't know. I mean, clearly it doesn't have the same impact as it would in this kind of a setback would in the Senate because individual members of Congress don't have a lot of power compared to individual senators. Um, So I don't know how it's going to affect her governing, but it's a really fascinating question whether, you know, in this kind of an election, does the left go after her? Do they? Certainly sounding like they might. And do they say, you know, we squeaked by in the presidency because of Trump, but if you want to win House races, you have to run on an agenda, and we didn't energize the progressive base enough. And we need a young progressive leader, and uh, somebody's going to challenge her. I think it's possible. So 
We're really lucky, uh, especially in this week of political insanity, to be joined by your colleague from Fox News and uh, a really terrific uh, political campaign strategist, uh, Mo. He goes by Mo, I guess, not Mohammed Alethi, who's a former spokesman for the Democratic National Committee, former spokesman for Hillary Clinton, and on top of all of that, the director of the Institute of Politics and Public Service at Georgetown University. He and I, a very fine institution. It is a very fine institution that has some questionable faculty. <laughs> <laughs> He's talking so, about me. Exactly. So Mo and I um, do a segment every Monday on Bill Hemmer reports on Fox News, and Bill calls it Mondays with Mo and Mark. <laughs> oh my God. All right. Well, this is Thursdays with Mo, Mark, and Danny. Doesn't have the same ring to it. Not quite. <laughs> Here's Mo. Well, Mo, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So you and I were on the Fox set for probably, what, six hours, seven hours on Tuesday night. Have you, first question is, have you recovered? For, we were together for far too long. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's going to be the story, to, the story of this election. Personally. <laughs> yeah. It was a long night and, uh, it, you know, to kick off a long week of what has been a very long campaign. Well, look, uh, we, as, as we record this, we still don't have a winner. But one thing that we do know and that we discussed on the air on Tuesday night is that the polls were so wrong. They were predicting a, a Biden wave and, a, and the, the Democrats were going to take over the Senate. And it's a really close election. What, what do you think happened? I look at it a little bit differently. I think at the presidential level, the polls were actually not that wrong. What they showed was a very close race at the state level in a bunch of states. And what we got were a bunch of very close calls in a bunch of states. You know, the the popular vote had Biden up. He's up in the popular vote. In state after state after state, we were seeing margin of error margins and Every one of these states has been that close. You know, there are a couple states that were off. Florida was off. But even then, it was still within the margin of error in the polls. So I, I think the polls have gotten better than they did four years ago. I think they accurately have reflected that we're a 50-50 nation because we're seeing a bunch of 50-50 states come out of this that are just tipping towards Biden right now, which most of the polls predicted, where they were really off as the Senate. And that I think there's going to need to be some reflection on on why they could be so close at the top of the ticket, but start to lose so much steam the further down they got. So, Mo, what do you think of this proposition that I think is being very widely bandied about at this point, that basically conservatives, Trump supporters, people with serious trust issues, social trust issues, are not ever going to be talking to pollsters, and there's no way of there's no way of capturing them accurately. Do you think that's fair or unfair? You know, look, I'm not a pollster, so I, I have a hard time answering this one intelligently. I do think that there are a lot of people out there who supported the president very proudly, and I think there were some people out there who supported President Trump uh, who were a little embarrassed by their support or were afraid to be public about it. But I've also heard from some pollsters out there that, you know, there could be a little bit of the reverse this time. People who didn't want to admit that they were wrong the first time when they voted for him, who uh, are switching, uh, but switched their vote. 
that there could be people in uh, split-ticket households uh, who didn't want to publicly say where they were. So, look, I think it's going to take a little bit of time before we can fully analyze what happened with the polls. But again, they did accurately reflect the fact that we are a very narrowly divided country. And I think it's impossible to argue with that fact right now. So right now it's looking like Republicans will hold on to the Senate. There was only one, so far, one net gain of a seat for the Democrats. If we are indeed a divided country and Joe Biden has said that he wants to unite the country and bring us together, isn't it really in a way a little bit better for him to have a Republican Senate in the sense that it insulates him from the pressure from his party's left to tack towards socialism and it increases the pressure for him to do what he did best when he was in the Senate, which is work across the aisle with Republicans? Uh, Unless something dramatic happens. We're looking at a a very likely scenario of President Biden with a Republican Senate. And as someone, you know, from day one of his candidacy, he has talked about his desire to bridge the divide. He has a long record of working uh, across the aisle in the Senate. He is a creature of the Senate who has a lot of personal relationships in the Senate. And so I think that actually will work to his benefit. You know, he goes in understanding not just the Senate, but individual senators far better than either of his two predecessors. And that's nothing to sneeze at. And I think given that he's going to come in in the middle of this global crisis, you know, that's going to be his top priority. There is, I think, a, a real frustration that COVID has become so partisan. If there's anything that should unite us. It is a major crisis. So I think he's going to look for those opportunities using that issue to find some commonality and maybe set a different tone from the start of his presidency than uh, we've seen before. I hope so. Amen. I hope so, too. That would be absolutely awesome. I have so many questions for you, but let's talk a little bit about the electorate. I think a lot of people uh, misjudged where the electorate is on a lot of issues. So Mark and I were just chatting before we got on with you about the fact that in California, Proposition 16, which sought to reinstate uh, affirmative action, it was called diversity, but it was basically the same thing, went down resoundingly. A whole bunch of places saw that kind of repudiation. And when you see that in California, which is sort of the bluest of the blue, does that tell us something about where the zeitgeist of American Democrats are that's different from the conventional wisdom? Well, I mean, I guess it depends on what you think the conventional wisdom is, the zeitgeist of of Democrats, Democrats these days. I don't think the Democratic Party is far left despite uh, how many times Mark and I have to have this argument on the air together. (laughs) I I don't think the party is being controlled by some crazy socialist wing. I think the majority of Democrats are center left. And the best uh, evidence of that are our primaries, where far more moderate Democrats defeat progressive Democrats in primaries than the reverse. If it was a far left party, Joe Biden never would have become the Democratic nominee. You know, you've got some very loud progressives, but what they are doing in a lot of places is just turning blue districts bluer, or they reflect blue districts that are turning bluer. The people who are turning blue districts red are the centrists. 
And so I think that's kind of where the party is. Look, my take of the electorate, and I think there's enough evidence now to support this over the past few election cycles, is that we are very polarized and we are very divided, but it's not so much by ideological left versus right spectrum that what's really dividing us is two things. One, it's not left versus right, it's front versus back. It's the people who feel like they are stuck at the back of the line who are really frustrated with the people at the front of the line who are keeping them in the back. So we are living in some form of populist era. The way it's playing out politically, I think the greatest fissure in our politics is geographic. It's the closer you live to the downtown of a major metropolitan area, the more likely you are to vote for a Democrat in the last several elections. The further away you are from a major metropolitan area, the more likely you are to vote for a Republican. The urban-suburban coalition has been cemented. The suburbs used to be sort of a a purplish shade of red or a reddish shade of purple. They then became toss-ups. They are now solidly blue. They have banded themselves to urban areas. And for a long time, that was the Democratic Party's goal and strategy in the hopes that that would create a majority. But what we have seen in the last two elections is that while that coalition is solid, the rural vote is incredibly motivated. When it is incredibly motivated, it can match them in numbers. The thing that is motivating both right now is a sense of being victimized. It's a sense of grievance. And so you saw two very animated electorates, the rural electorate and the urban-suburban electorate. And that's a dangerous divide. Like, I, I don't think either party can survive long term by just focusing on that one base. The Republican Party is not going to be a successful long-term party if it is purely the rural party. And Democrats can't to ignore. But what you're seeing is a lot more working-class voters who live in the suburbs and the cities breaking blue than breaking red. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of soul-searching both parties have to do now after this election to figure out how they can narrow that. And I fear that too many of the leaders are still thinking on the left versus right spectrum instead of looking at what's happening on the ground. So I'm not willing yet to concede that Joe Biden is going to be president because we're not there yet. But I think since we have you, we want to we really want to understand what's going on within the Democratic Party because you're so steeped in it. So let's assume for a minute that Joe Biden is elected and Donald Trump leaves Washington, leaves the White House. So much of the Democratic Party has been driven by anti-Trumpism. And it's sort of unified Democrats across the spectrum. Joe Biden, one of the reasons he was able to unify the Democratic Party behind him is not because people really embraced his moderation. I think if you look at the Fox News voter analysis, the majority of people who voted for Biden were voting against Trump, not for Biden. And they didn't. The number of people who say they agree with Biden on the issues was below 50 percent. So talk to us a little bit about the fissures that might now emerge within the Democratic coalition if anti-Trumpism is not there to be the glue to keep them all together? The immediate fissure is going to be sort of what we've already referenced a little bit, which is the far left versus the center left. That's a normal fissure. That is the mirror opposite of the same fissure that Republicans were grappling with for some time after the rise of the Tea Party, right? The far right versus the center right. But I don't think the majority of the Democratic base right now, I I think the majority of the Democratic base is slightly more center left. Where I 
am hopeful the Democratic Party goes moving forward. And I feel good about it after seeing the success of Joe Biden in the party primaries, but also how he communicated during the campaign was with more of this, a message that can better connect the struggles of the base with those of working class voters, right? Joe Biden's success in this election was driven in large part by his ability to appeal to white working class voters about as equally or much greater level than past Democrats have been able to, while still keeping the traditional Democratic base energized enough. And what's fascinating about the way he did it was by communicating, you know, I reject the premise that his entire message was anti-Trump. That got a lot of attention just because of the unique nature of this campaign and how polarizing the president was. But if you ever listen to the true core of his message, it was one that articulated shared values between those different constituencies, right? I still think the notion that some Democrats were pushing after the success of Barack Obama, that demographics are destiny, really hurt the Democratic Party. Because what that essentially said was that we don't need these white working class voters if we just focus on the rising electorate of African-American, Latino, women, young voters. So eventually they will outnumber. That's not incorrect. They will outnumber and Democrats are, are smart to continue to appeal to those groups, but not at the expense of white working class voters. And Joe Biden was actually able to connect some of those dots in a way that a lot of other Democratic candidates struggle to do during the primaries. If he's able to continue to do that as president, I think that serves the party well. But that needs to be the goal of the rest of the party as well. That needs to be the goal of Senate leaders, of House leaders, and not to allow the party to continue to be perceived as just a coastal party or just an urban party. Look, let me give you one anecdote. I remember seeing some focus groups after the 2014 midterms which was a, obviously a terrible night for us. And in these focus groups, the moderator gave everyone a piece of paper. And this was an exercise I hadn't seen before in focus groups and asked everybody to, he was gonna say a word and he wanted them to draw an image, the first picture that came to mind. And they had like 15 seconds to do it. The first word was Republican. And you know, it's focus groups, so you get all sorts of different answers. Mark just drew a smiley face. But you start, <laughs> 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 I wouldn't smile too big these days. But, but you started to see some commonalities. The most commonly drawn picture when people heard the word Republican was a dollar sign. And when we asked them why, the response was because they are the party for the rich. They are the party for the wealthy. This was, you know, 2014, and the party has shifted, you know, a bit since then. A lot. But as, you know, a as a Democrat, I was pretty pumped by that answer. Then we asked them to flip the paper over, and the word was Democrat. The most commonly drawn picture? I, I don't want to know what you're drawing right now. <laughs> I was about to tell you. A sad but, face. But, but it wasn't what you thought. Commonly drawn, the most commonly drawn picture was a question mark. Oh. That's like a kick to the gut for a Democratic message person, right? And when we pushed them on it and asked them why, the response was, well, I get that they're the party for 
for black voters and for Hispanics and for LGBTQ or for young, but what are they doing for me? Right. And these were all sort of like white independent voters. So demographics are destiny. Yes, but not at the expense of these other voters. And when you ask them, they share a lot of the same concerns, not entirely, but a lot of the same concerns. It's about a lack of access to opportunity. And that's where the party needs to be. So, I mean, a perfect segue to my question, because, well, I mean, we have a world-renowned demographer here at AEI, Nick Eberstadt, who probably hates that expression, demography is destiny, more than anybody on earth. But I mean, I do feel like our Democratic friends should have gotten a kick in the gut from something else in this election, and that is identity politics. You know, the notion that for four years, Donald Trump and the Republican Party have been called racists and haters, anti-black, anti-brown, and yet managed. You know, I'm just looking at the New York Times exit polls. I, I, you know, I, I don't know whether it has the same credibility as everything else in the New York Times, but I'm, uh, it's the best site for it. So, you know, black men doubled the number. Now it's still only 18 percent, but it's that's pretty dramatic. Latino men. 36%. Latino women, 28%. All other races, 37%. What that tells me is that these are people who don't walk into a booth and think to themselves, first and foremost, I am a person of color and therefore I will vote for the Democratic Party. They think about themselves as Americans. Isn't that the message? I don't ever want to be a part of a party that doesn't stand up against a lot of the behavior that appalled me from the Trump administration. I, I am proud that the party stood up to that. But the message has to be more than that, right? The message, right. the appeal to voters, it's not enough to say to them, his behavior in Charlottesville was appalling, and that is why you should vote against him. The message is his behavior in Charlottesville was appalling, and that's consistent with how he has neglected the community in these other ways. Here's what we have to offer you. Now, look, I think both parties have a real problem with the second half of that equation. Both parties have a real problem sometimes articulating, here's what we have to offer you. Both parties prefer to, to talk about or more comfortable or at least get more attention when they talk about, here's what the other side is not giving you. Trump but had a good best answer to that question, though, Mo. I mean, he he had the lowest black and Hispanic unemployment on his watch in the history of the country. He passed criminal justice reform. He passed funding for historically black uh, colleges and universities. First time they had permanent funding opportunity zones. He really I mean, I think one of the reasons why he did make progress with those communities is because he actually did have an answer to your second question. No, he didn't. He had an answer. <laughs> uh, it, well, a substantive I answer. He did, right? One of the biggest problems of the Trump candidacy was he never talked about what's next. He never talked about what's next. He would point to some of these things, right? He would point to the fact that black unemployment was down following, honestly, trajectories that he inherited. I give him credit for embracing criminal justice reform. I think he deserves credit for that. I think both parties Right. That was one of the rare moments of true bipartisanship we have seen uh, in Washington in quite some time. But a lot of things he was taking credit for were things that were due to a trajectory that he inherited. But then when he mishandled covid, right, the bottom fell out for a lot of communities. And where Trump made a mistake was he never said, I get it. 
I get that the bottom fell out for you. Here's how I'm going to turn it around. He never did that. What Democrats did was point out that it was all a mirage. He did not really help you. Look at how bad you have it right now. But probably could have done more of articulating, here's how we're going to do it differently. And I wish both parties would do a little bit more of the here's how I will do it differently messaging. I don't think either one really does that well. So we've only got you for for a few more minutes, so I want to ask you an exit question for me. We don't know who's going to win the election, but let's presume for the sake of our discussion that Joe Biden wins the election and is inaugurated president. Donald Trump isn't going away. He's still eligible to run. (laughs) Never, He's still eligible to run for another term. I have a theory, actually, Mo, which is that this whole argument of fraud is not so much targeted at this election, but at the next election, that he's basically doing to Biden what the Democrats did to him, which is to call into question the legitimacy of his presidency and then campaign in 2024 on reclaiming the stolen presidency. That's going to be a different dynamic than any president has faced, not just because of the individual personality of Donald Trump, but because we haven't had a one-term president who's then planned to run for re-election. And, you know, I mean, George Bush walked away and was gave Obama his silence. Obama basically followed that except for the campaign. Trump's going to be around from, you know, the beginning. He's going to be tweeting. He's going to be active. He's going to be running. How does that impact the Biden presidency and how does Biden handle that? Look, you're assuming he's going to run again. I don't buy But let's, for argument's sake, say he does. Believe that, right? But I, but I agree that he's going to be a loud and vocal force in our politics, whether he is a candidate for president again or whether he creates a new media empire, right? Like, he will be very loud. And this is his base. Look, Donald Trump was questioning the legitimacy of his own election. I've never before seen someone win an election and at the same time claim widespread fraud in the election that they won. <laughs> Um, he, he has been masterful at manipulating grievance politics, right? I mean, for all the talk about the snowflakes of the left, he embraces snowflakeism and, and has turned it into a political ideology. And whatever he does next, I think he is going to continue to be sort of the guy who tries to be the voice of the angry, aggrieved out there. Whether or not he does that through politics or whether or not he does that through trying to impact politics from the outside, which I think is more likely, you know, there's nothing he'd love more than to create a media empire and say he was the kingmaker in 2024. That noise will be there. And what I would argue for for Joe Biden is to just ignore it, right? I still think 2020 was in part a referendum not so much on Donald Trump, but on chaos. I think people are exhausted. I think they are exhausted of noise. And I think part of Biden's appeal has been he was the anti-chaos, the anti-noise candidate. And so being able to sort of restore a sense of calm will actually be the way for him to be successful as president while blocking out and kind of trying to marginalize the noise as much as he can. It won't be easy. Yeah, no, it won't be easy. And my quick exit question, I know you've got to go, is just about one of the things that you've talked about very eloquently, which is, you know, where, who is the Democratic Party and where does it go? You rightly said it's got a lot of very loud people who may or may not represent where the party goes. In some way, Biden, if he becomes president, will have been saved because he will not see a Senate pushing to court pack 
to end the filibuster, to bring D.C. or Puerto Rico into the union. What is the fate of these loud Elizabeth Warrens, Bernie Sanders squad types in the party? Do they continue to try to steal all the oxygen or is the party going to head in a different direction with a new man at the top? I think it's going to become a bit of a coalition party, to be honest. I think they will have a voice. They will have a seat at the table. They will have a voice. And I think that's a good thing. Right. I mean, it is a fairly diverse party ideologically. Um, There's a lot of ground between the center left and the far left. And so having all those at the table. But Joe Biden has proven throughout his career that he's able to put a lot of people around the table and, and find a way forward that doesn't give everybody what they want, but at least keeps the ball going. That's where I think we will be. So, yes, Elizabeth Warren, AOC, Bernie Sanders, we haven't heard the last from them, and I don't think we should hear the last of them. I think their voices. I may differ important. with you on that one. <laughs> right. I mean, I think their voices are an important part of the conversation, but I don't think a Biden administration will be held captive by them. I think they will get some things that they want, but not nearly everything that they want. And they'll be help- he will be helped in that no end by Mitch McConnell, which is probably a good thing. You've been awesome and so generous with your time at a time when I'm betting you are one of the most popular guys in town. Trying to balance uh, all of this craziness with two small kids at home uh, <laughs> yeah, that has been quite the balance in the middle of this chaotic election. But I can uh, but only I imagine. Well, we're really grateful. Thanks a ton. And we hope we'll be able to have you back once this election is decided for once and for all. And I'll see you on Hammer on Monday. Oh. I look forward to it. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks, Mo. Take care. Bye, Mo. Thank you. Bye. So, Danny, I think uh, Mo didn't bite on the idea of Donald Trump running for re-election. I think that um, if Donald Trump loses, and again, he may not. We may be here next week talking about uh, the plans for the second term. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, Revenge, I think, are the plans (laughs) for the second term. (laughs) Just wait. That that may also be the plan for Biden's first term. (laughs) I still remember, just as a total aside, but I know everyone, anybody anybody of a certain age remembers New York Mayor Ed Koch, Mm -hmm. right? And so after he was ousted from office. um, By David Dinkins. By by David Dinkins. He was actually at an event at AEI. um, And so, uh, you know, I asked him, do you think you'll run again? And he goes, no, Danny, the people have spoken. And they must be punished. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite Ed Koch quote. I grew up in New York under Ed Koch. I love that story. Um, Look, the reality is, I think, if Donald Trump is not inaugurated uh, for a second term, he is going to run again. If he wants it and there's nobody who's going to challenge him for the nomination, it's going to freeze the Republican field. Maybe Kasich, maybe some some never Trump person, but there's no – I mean, you just look at the rallies. I mean, like the 18 rallies he did in four, three or four days leading up to 20, 30,000 people, 40,000 people at, a, at, a, at an airport. I mean, it was enormous. The Republican base is Donald Trump's. If Donald Trump wants the nomination in 24, Donald Trump will get the nomination in 2024. And and if it's uh, uh, Kamala Harris who yep. is running. Yep. Then wowie! Yeah. I know. I but, can but only what, imagine. But that imagine. Case. But what's it, what are the next four years going to be like? Because we've never had a situation where a. Pre, I mean, where I a former I'm, president. I, I have shut to go up. back. And, yeah. <laughs> I mean, sir, George Bush said, "I owe Barack Obama my silence," and he and he exited the stage. Barack Obama basically followed 
his model, not 100%, but close. Yeah, mostly. Uh, be, but both of them, had were, their political careers were finished, right? When's, I mean, I think, I can't think, we have to get a good historian to talk Grover about it. Grover Cleveland. Think, was Grover Cleveland the last president? <laughs> Certainly one of them. Well, I know TR ran for president again after having uh, exited the presidency. So, I mean, I, it's been probably going that far back where Twitter we had wasn't a former a, president. Then. I mean, the last president to lose out after one term was George H.W. Bush, and he basically retired. When's the last time we had a president who Wouldn't was an active political force after losing the presidency. Well, and, Jimmy and, Carter tries to be, but he, but he, of course, isn't. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I, it's nobody, just me fascinating. It's just a, it's going to be fascinating to see how that dynamic plays out if Donald Trump is out of the White House but planning to come back in. Oh, it'll be amazing. So, and uh, and two minutes on my last uh, question: What's the lesson that Democrats are going to derive? One of the th- most interesting things I've been watching since the election is the whipsaw that has happened among Democrats about whether they were right or wrong about the election. All recriminations on Tuesday night, all anger. And then Tuesday morning, you know, the, the return to that complacent, you know, complacent backpatting uh, uh, circular admiration society that they like to run. Um, but they really screwed up in the House and Senate. Okay. What is the lesson that they are going to derive from that? Is it going to be we didn't go left enough? Well, it depends on whether Biden wins or not. So if Biden doesn't win and if Trump pulls this out, then that is absolutely the lesson that they're going to take from this, which is that we we tried to do the Trojan horse strategy. We tried to put a veneer of moderation on our party and look what happened. Our base didn't turn out. We had an enthusiasm gap with Trump. Um, and the lesson of that is you have to go. We should be more like Trump. We should feed our base throw stakes to the masses, uh, give the people what they want. And the base of the Democratic Party is is far left. And so let's feed them. And then the moderates can either come along or not, because that's basically what Trump did. And if Trump succeeds, that'll be the lesson is we need to be more Trumpy, uh, except in a left wing version. If not, if Biden wins, then there's a counter argument to that that says, look, the voters are moderate. The country is not far left, and we won by by putting a moderate on there. And if he succeeds as governing as moderate, um, but we'll get things done with Mitch McConnell, then that'll be the lesson. I bet it's not. <laughs> <laughs> That's the lesson it should be. <laughs> and on that... We're going to solve all the Democratic Party's problems here on this podcast. We have all the answers. Exactly. Anyway, it's been a long week for everybody. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Don't hesitate to send complaints about Mark to Mark. Praise for me to me and complaints about the tech to Alexa. (laughs) (laughs) See you next week. Bye. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 